Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The practice of global health today can trace its roots to colonialism. It was a combination of imperial ambition and white supremacy that inspired what was known then and is still sometimes referred to today as tropical medicine and hygiene. As my guest today, Ashti Dubey-Persaud explains, the colonial roots of global health are very much still present in many aspects of how global health is practiced today. This can be seen in a variety of ways, ranging from how funding decisions are made to how medical students are sometimes trained. Ashdi Dubey-Persaud is an assistant professor of medicine and medical education at Northwestern University, where she co-directs the Center for Global Health Education and is the faculty director of the Master of Science in Global Health program. We kick off discussing the colonialist history of the practice of global health and how that legacy is experienced today. We then have a broader conversation about what can be done to decolonize global health, including the role of academic institutions in this effort. Today's episode is produced in partnership with Northwestern University's Online Masters of Science in Global Health, which has been a longtime partner of this podcast. You can learn more about this program and how the online Master of Science in Global Health program at Northwestern can help you make a meaningful difference around the world. Visit sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Ashdi Dubey-Persad. So, you know, I think maybe, Mark, we should start with the history of global health or what is global health. Um, And so global health was really born from tropical medicine um, and international health. And tropical medicine and hygiene uh, was the term used by colonizers to describe medicine in many of the colonies. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, colonizers wanted to make the settlements safe for themselves. And so when they went there, they did a couple of things that really uh, sort of structured the health systems there. Their interventions in colonized spaces were really about the health of those that were colonizing, so themselves. And then also they used health as a tool for subjugation. So they used Western norms of health as a way of describing racial inferiority. There are some advertisements and um, sort of descriptions of what the white man's burden was in those times. And it was really to teach those and help those in colonies learn about things like soap and cleanliness, and that there was a moral burden or a moral imperative to teach those who were inferior about ways that were superior. 
all framed in the terms of disease. That's fascinating. You know, in your answer, you have taught me why the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene has its name. As long as I've been doing this, I never quite got it because it sounded so awkward, but it was born out of that imperialist mindset in which you got to, you know, make the natives clean in order to make it safe for yourself to extract the wealth from the places that you're going. Exactly. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And it's Mark, so weird so, that that school still has that name, I suppose, now that you're giving me the answer no, to that question. No, so not so, so not, yeah. so you're, so like nail on the head in like the first two minutes here, because I, I, I can't, I can't even man, manage sometimes when I'm asked to work in certain spaces. I've pushed back in a couple of places to say, ASTMH, that's the American School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, LSTMH, London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. So how can you go on perpetuating this sort of like parasitic, unhygienic perspective of the world in your name when your purpose is equity and justice, right? Like talk about the irony. So I've, I've asked, I, I've been shocked and I've asked, I've said, you know, like, how is this okay? And they said, well, you know, we've had some conferences to talk about changing our name, but then yeah. we said no. And I said, oh, well, this is, this is pretty bad, pretty bad. Right. Because tr- you know what that means? So my family's from Guyana and Suriname. I'm a diaspora Indian, but essentially like you just denigrated anywhere mm. that's tropical, quote unquote. <laughs> as being a place that like needs to be cleaned up or someone who is superior can come and help those, you know, places of denigration. So the other part of it, have you heard of uh, Gorgas? Gorgas? No. G-O-R-G-A-S. So he's also, he's a father of tropical medicine and hygiene, Uh. and he was the head of the AMA. And there's a, there's a headline from the journal of the American medical association JAMA. I might need to fact check this if, if this exactly, but he's quoted as saying when they're working on the Panama canal, he's quoted as saying, um, essentially figuring out <laughs> how to cure yellow fever or remove mosquitoes or remove parasites from this place, you know, removing this vector borne infection is going to like lead to the conquest of the tropics mm. for the white race. That's the title. It's like 1880s. It's 1909 or something like that. And it is the title. Uh, so if those are the roots of the concept of global health, you know, making the tropics cleaner and safer for white people to conquer, what is the legacy of that sort of mindset in today's architecture of how global health is is structured in terms of like large foundations and NGOs? Do you detect a legacy of that origin story of global health and how today's global health system operates? Absolutely. So that's the issue is that the sort of legacy and structure of global health really was born out of this colonial medicine, missionary medicine, tropical medicine origin and structure. And so it turns out that that power and privilege paradigm is what most of global health is built on. And I will take a moment to say that, you know, there's like a deep contradiction in the work right? Global health, as we 
see it today as we practice is born out of these traditions and these roots, but our goals are equity and justice. So there's like an inherent contradiction and conflict that I think we all need to recognize. And even the definition of global health has sort of uh, superiority, inferiority assumptions, and, and we can go into that. But to answer your question, so what it is now today is is this. It's similar in that there, all of the funding structures, the donor priorities, the leadership, the data, and the research, all of those priorities are set by the neocolonials, those with power recognition and sort of like even identifying what the critical perhaps interventions are or even um, critical areas that require intervention is is set by the high-income countries, Mm -hmm. you know, set by the agenda set by those who come from the places that colonizers come from. Because, say, USAID is the single largest global development funding organization around the world, or because, say, the Gates Foundation is located in Seattle, or the, what used to be called DFID, uh, you know, the, the mm-hmm. UK's foreign aid arm is a, a large and powerful arm. Because these are all still, you know, the, the power still resides in, in the West, uh, it is their priorities that are are reflected in global health. Absolutely. And it's sort of like this supremacist way of seeing and doing things right. Like, just like you said, the USAID office or the Gates Foundation located in Seattle or located here, they are more important, right? Like hierarchically, they are supreme in the global health agenda because they get to decide. Their headquarters are more important than the small local office in wherever that actually understands what the problems are or is engaged with the community or understands the space because that's where the money comes from. And ultimately, you know, we can talk about sort of, we're going to talk about mitigation, but ultimately, if you like, if you really think about it and you just go all the way back it's it starts with it, it starts with poverty right so we talked about colonialism like the main right the two main um sort of you know tenets or you know what they wanted to do or goals of 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 colonizers is to extract wealth and subjugate right so it's power and and money um and so if you go all the way back you're like extraction of wealth so poverty well Poverty begets illness. They're cate- these the countries we're talking about are mostly categorized as lower and middle income countries. Why is that? Because of poverty. Why is that? Because all the wealth that could have helped mitigate much disease and illness, or perhaps build systems, was extracted so early on. And so that poverty begets illness cycle that everybody knows about, right? Like, I think that's the one thing everyone knows, right? Everyone knows that health and wealth are inextricably related, that poverty is like the major social determinant of health. Well, that was created by the system, right? So that colonial system we created is the one now we 
we're aiming to mitigate. Is there like a specific example of a program or, you know, something that happened in global health in recent past that reflects this kind of colonial mindset? A concrete answer is what defines um, sort of voluntourism or medical tourism. Um, I think you've actually, I'll move outside of our in our in the medical world, what that means is medical students or volunteers or untrained professionals going abroad um, or you know going going to an unfamiliar setting and performing procedures they would not otherwise be allowed to do or that they are not trained to do or without any supervision. Like a dermatologist white. going to like Uganda and performing heart surgery. Yeah, you're I'm like so um trying to be so careful not to give the like and the glaring examples because they sort they sound exploitative, but I'll tell you what it is. It's like when so many people in so many places I've been to have asked me to deliver a baby. Um, so many I've seen many students come back and be excited about trying out procedures they've not had a mm. chance to try before the notion of well something is better than nothing on quote these people mm. you know unquote yeah. so that kind of so people will say i i now i want to be clear that young people today their eyes are open so 10 years ago, this was more of a running theme, and that, that, that sort of superiority thing, like, oh, like, I want to try. This was a great experience. I got to do an appendectomy, and I'm a medical student. You don't hear that as much anymore, but it's that current, right? Mm. It's that idea that brings up a lot of questions in education and sort of purposes what is the purpose of a international exchange? And, you know, we do actually, I got into the field or, or I got into global health ethics and education precisely because of this. So I was asked to perform outside of my scope of training a number of times. Some things were simple, as simple as suturing up someone's thumb. So someone who had a machete cut, I was just asked to suture up their thumb. You can probably hear from how I speak that I'm very careful about what I do. And I think a lot about the words that I use and about what I'm going to do because I don't want to make a mistake. I've never sutured anyone's thumb. I've done some simple suturing prior to that experience. I had not done it. So this is someone's thumb and their entire job is using a machete outside. And it was, it was, it needed work and I needed to make sure that there were no tendons ruptured. I didn't know what to do. There was no one else there. I ended up spending most of my time figuring out how to get a someone who had any surgical experience to do this for me. Mm. That's one small example. I don't want to use the big glaring examples when I've seen someone yeah. <laughs> like be asked to do an LP on a baby, a lumbar puncture on a baby, and they'd never done it before. Mm. You have all these examples of volunteerism, plus this idea of donors in Western countries setting global health priorities and agendas for um, places and countries far away in, in Africa or in Asia. 
in the midst of, of this all, we've had this COVID pandemic, which has upended how global health is done in terms of you know sending people around the world, uh, as well as upended in general the global health space. And you know, it's been concurrent with this pandemic that I have noticed an uptick in conversations around decolonization and decolonizing global health, decolonizing global development. I'm interested in learning from you how COVID-19, how the pandemic has impacted and influenced uh, some of these debates that, that you've discussed. Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great question. So uh, a little bit kind of back to what we were talking about, the, the paradigm has had started to shift, right? So people like me, global health educators have been teaching about humility, about introspection. Most of my classes are on colonialism and on like an entire class on imperialism and colonialism and influence in, in, and mitigating voluntarism. Um, a lot of folks have been restructuring programs and thinking about how to do this kind of going forward. But as you said, a lot of the structure of global health involved travel, right? So this idea of parachuting in, you know, the structure of the work itself um, lends, you know, is is this sort of same <laughs> colonial structure where some, you know, global north, quote unquote, superior university comes into global south and 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 sort of tells them what to do, as well as in education, like you know, much of the global health educational work has been around international exchanges. So what happens when you don't travel? All of us had to really take a pause and say, okay, why do we travel? You know, I've always used, there's a, there's a nice global health definition that says that, and I say it to my students all the time, that global health is not about, the global and global health is not about location, but it's about scope of the problem. And if that's the case, then you don't need to travel to do global health. You need to work in spaces that have a global scope um, that affect health. And so the most concrete thing for us is obviously has been reducing travel. And so it's been really um, helpful structurally to go to our institutions and pause and reflect on why we do this, like a real reckoning on the finances, how much money we spend, cost, carbon for travel. What are the real benefits of the travel? Are they actually moving us towards any kind of sustainable solutions where, I mean, ideally, right, in global health, you Ideally, the way I understand it is you disappear, right? You facilitate and you disappear because that, you know, it's not about you. It's about the local health like system. The work your way out of a job kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. You shouldn't, if you're still there after 10 years, you know, 15 years, you need to think about what am I doing here still? Like, why is it, why is it that I am here? And if travel if travel is not the pivot point, right? If travel, if traveling is, so what is the pivot point? What is the benefit? Where is the transformation? And so the, I'm speaking from an educational perspective in terms of transfer, transformation. And so it helped a lot of us who've been of this mindset sort of 
pause, reflect, and kind of push back. And so we've seen a little bit that like what a lot of the agendas that we wanted to that, you know, that fit fit the quote unquote deep decolonizing or perhaps um, a nicer way is this sort of like anti-racist or anti-supremacy or anti-colonial way of thinking um, have we've been able to do that or, or, or examine it. So we've been able to examine what happens in virtual collaborations. We've been forced to kind of say, okay, actually, let's see if we can turn this like in-country experience into an online experience. Like what are the benefits there? Like who's really benefiting? And we've been able to sort of do things like move funding from travel to local partners, because that's really how structurally, that's how you can make more things happen and make them happen in a way that's really partner driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's- it, Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting like, uh, along those lines, what I've heard from talking to people in other parts of the global development space is that, you know, the trend had been towards localization, or at least that had been the aspiration. Um, but COVID-19 has made that a reality where these large NGOs can no longer parachute their people in. So they actually mm-hmm. have to rely on, on uh, local partners to do the job. And many of them are realizing that they're doing it a far more efficient and effective than what parachuting in might have produced. It's really wonderful, right? So it's like, it's, it's given us a chance to, um, put our money where our mouth is. Like I'm someone who's always been saying, you don't need to travel to do global health. Right. But when I write my educational work or I do it's, I spend all of my time, most of it around the idea of travel. I spend time on partnership and collaboration, but that's specific to all different relationships. Right. So even the approach to pre-departure preparation is very general, but actually is about hyper-localization. It's about radically shifting both the listening and the outcomes to our partners on the ground. And I imagine it's making many people uncomfortable, but you know, what's going to be really important after this um, is that metrics change. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about, you know, metrics of success are defined by high income countries. Just having covered this space for, you know, the last 15 years covered global health and development, there is this like tyranny of quantitative analytics uh, that seems to dominate a lot of the major players. They demand outcomes like measurable outcomes uh, on specific uh, data points when in fact, sometimes the actual outcomes are not quantitatively measurable. It's all about volume. It's not about value. Mm. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how, um, you know, businesses have to fund things that have key performance indicators and outcomes. And why do we have social spaces and government? It's to fund these long-term like help assist or horizontal systematic community building, the real stuff that you can't measure because it takes too long to measure it. That's like, that's the space that we need to be working in. 
And we need to be taking the lead from our partners. I don't even know what my partner's ideas of success would be because their entire educational and health systems are also built upon colonial systems, you know, predominantly British systems. Um, So for them, even, you know, the indicators that are embedded within their systems are colonial. I'm actually too embarrassed to even ask my partners what they think about the word decolonizing, because I think in and of itself, it's pejorative. So I struggle with even using the word. It's like, why do I have to come in and decolonize? And now it's another supremacy <laughs> space. And so I was going to ask my my partner about it, who I work with in Nigeria. And then I said, I'm too embarrassed to even ask yeah. her like what she thinks about the word. You are in an academic institution. What role do academic institutions like Northwestern Mm -hmm. serve in sort of advancing this debate? So we should be really upending this structurally, right? We should be saying to ourselves, okay, we've recognized the sort of pathologies here, the way that research is done you know, the way that students um, pursue these these, uh, exchanges, we need to re-examine that structure. And I think we need to change our measures. Students don't do these like four to six week clinical electives in an unfamiliar setting where they may not have the skills, supervision that is expected where we ask our partners, what is it that you like about our students coming? You know, what is it that actually benefits benefits you in the space outside of maybe the tuition? So rethinking that and really rethinking that engagement. So we teach our students what we believe, that, that that's not the way to be. And we need to change the paradigm in the academic space in the same way. So just as it is in the NGO world, it is in the academic space. It's about volume. How many students go abroad every year? How many places do they go? I've always said, be wary of places that have many, many, many pins in their map. Mm -hmm. They go to many, many, many places in the world. And I haven't got the analogy right, but it's not the number of pins, right? But it's like the depth of the pin or like how long the pin has been there or whatever, you know, that the pin is actually put there by the partner or something like that, but it will require this big shift. I think it even might require renaming, right? If we're saying global health has been about parasites and parachuting, and we want to change that, and we want to be about equity and justice, we want authorship, first author and senior author, that's a big deal in academic space. Maybe you should only get funded or you get preferential funding if you show that your first and last authors are your colleagues where the research are, are from the colleagues mm. where the research is being done, where the work is being done. How about if you're going to apply for a grant that the senior PI principal investigator must be your partner um, equally to you? Publications is a big part of it too. So all the journals that are like, you know, the most coveted journals, they're all located within high-income countries. Um, the, the university you want to partner with, we need to change it so that, you know, universities 
where the work is being done are as highly mm. regarded as the universities here in the in in high high income countries. So we've already started ways forward. You know, like I said, all the classes I teach are about this. So at the very least, eyes are wide open, and there's a critical approach to the work and a critical understanding of some of these social contracts that we've been kind of buying into or financial contracts. You know, what would be great is if there was a shift in donor um, priorities also really to say like, show us value, figure out how you describe value. Does that mean that it needs to be a qualitative I don't know, I'm making something up now, but like that your partner qualitatively somehow describes trust and 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 partnership and like there needs to be a reckoning with the way we give out money and reparation, right? Mm-hmm. So we I started this by saying this started, right? This started because we took or colonizers took wealth away, took money away began the poverty illness cycle and then perpetuated it, right? Like continue to take diamonds, continue to take gold, continue to take tea, continue to take coffee, people, et cetera. I don't know who can quantify that money that needs to be paid back. But as I was thinking about it, well, that would be the first step. Mm. Forgive debt, IMF, you know, like forgive just, and, and no, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about quote unquote giving money, right? Like, oh, that's gonna, this is gonna happen. That's gonna happen. Well, you took money so long ago. So at least give it back. Well, Ashti, thank you so much for your time. You know, in, in uh, this course of this conversation, you made me understand why over the course of like 15 years that I've been covering this, I keep encountering solutions uh, to problems that don't exist. Uh, so uh, thank you. This, this was very, very helpful. Thanks so much, Mark. It's such a pleasure to, to talk with you and, and get to talk about this um, important work in global health. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ashti Dubé Persaud. That was absolutely fascinating. It really did make me think of the practice of global health in ways that I hadn't really understood before. So thank you. And another big thank you to Northwestern University's Master of Science in Global Health program for supporting this episode and for being a supporter of this show over the years. Again, visit sps.northwestern.edu slash global to learn more. You can also send me an email and I'm happy to put you in touch with the good folks over at Northwestern. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.